Well, it's, uh, it's good to be here with you guys, whether you're sitting here in a chair with us this morning or whether you're sitting at home on your couch in your PJs watching online. We're glad that you're here. If we haven't met you, I am James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith, and today is week three of a series called Walk This Way. And in this series, we are using backpacking and the gear that you take with you on the trail as an illustration to help us explore different spiritual practices that are meant to help us know God. Um, But before we dig into today's sermon, let's just take a little time together and let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the chance to gather. Uh, God, we've got a, a full sanctuary today, and that's exciting and encouraging. So we pray for all those who are here, that you uh, help them engage in your word, and for all those who are watching online, that you help them stay focused uh, on you and able to worship where they're at. Lord, we think of some different concerns we have going on in the church. We again want to lift up to you the Haglins. We thank you for such a testament to faith that happened yesterday, but we pray for them in the coming hours and days and months that you continue to be present with them and be their strength. Lord, we think of um, the different anxieties that we have right now with COVID and the uptick in numbers. Just help us be reasonable reasonable people who are are concerned about loving others and and help us uh, act in such a way that that fosters um, friendship and, and love and connection instead of fear and division. Lord, we are just thankful for the way that you guide us in our work in our lives, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So every week, Pastor Mike's been bringing his backpack up on stage, and, you know, I want to be like Mike, so I I brought my backpack up just to be cool. And, uh, you know, I got started backpacking when I was a freshman in college, and back then I was uh, much, much younger and much dumber than I am today. And my friends and I, we thought that a backpacking trip wasn't fun unless it was, like, really crazy hard, um, definitely a bit dangerous, and it had to push our limits to the extreme. Uh, So adding to that really ridiculous mindset, we were also really poor, uh, and we could not afford good gear. And one time, we went backpacking in the mountains of North Carolina, and our plan was to get out there, and we wanted to do as many miles as we possibly could every day. So we were trying to save some weight in our packs. We all opted to take our lightest sleeping bags, as well as, instead of a tent, we just brought a lightweight tarp that we could stretch out between some trees to sleep under. We thought to ourselves, like, hey, North Carolina, it's in the south. It's going to be warm down there. Well, our second night out on the trail, uh, we got stuck in a horrendous, unexpected blizzard, and all we had was our, our stupid little tarp and our sleeping bags, and my two friends and I, we spent the night huddling together to stay warm, absolutely miserable because we had the wrong gear for the situation, and we paid for it. Well, 15 years later, I've learned a whole lot more about backpacking and what gear makes your life better and what gear doesn't. And one of the pieces of gear that I've come to love and value is a good topographical map. I've got one right here that I keep in a baggie so that it doesn't get all all wet. Now, a good topographical map, it is not the same thing as the Maps app on your phone. You know, the Maps app on your phone, it's more like a GPS. It tells you exactly what to do, and unless you're like Michael Scott, it is easy to use and requires no time to study it. 
If it tells you to turn right in 300 feet, you know, you turn right in 300 feet. And if it turns, tells you to turn left in 300 feet, well, you just have to turn left in 300 feet. It's that easy. But a topographical map, it is not like that. You've got to study a topo map. You have to like ponder over it and learn how to use it properly. And when you do, it becomes an invaluable tool to anyone who's spending time in the backcountry. Now, I learned the value of a topographical map when I was spending some time uh, in the backcountry with my dad. We were going to spend a, a few nights out in the woods in a place that we had never been. And as we were getting all of our gear around, my dad said, hey, have you looked at the map yet? Now, I hadn't looked at the map, but I was also eager to get going and wasn't in the mood for a lecture. So I was like, yeah, of course, dad, whatever. I looked at the map. What do you take me for? I'm not a rookie here. And so we got out into the wilderness, and um, like I said, I was young and dumb and was eager to go hard and walk as, as hard and fast as I could, but he had a wiser approach. I'd get all ramped up and moving quickly, and he would say, James, slow down. In a couple miles, there's some serious elevation gain, and you don't want to be tired by the time we get there. Or we'd get to a stream, and I'd like stomp across it and keep moving, and he'd be like, hold up. We need to fill up our water supply here because there's not a good water source for the next five miles. Or I'd be exhausted from hiking like a lunatic, and I'd be like, all right, I'm ready to set up camp. And he would say, if we go another mile, we can be closer to the river, and then we can fish tonight and tomorrow morning. Now, we'd never spent much time in this area, but somehow he possessed all of this wisdom about how to navigate the terrain we were in. And I don't know if this happens to you, but sometimes I get frustrated with other people, especially my dad, when they seem to know much more and be so much better at something than I am. So I said, Dad, how do you know so much about this place? We have never even been here. And he said, you didn't look at the map, did you? He had probably spent three hours studying that dang topographical map, like looking at what parts of the trail had elevation gain and where the water sources would be and what looked like a good place to, to make camp and where the bends in the river would be so we could fish. He had just pondered over it for a long time. And because of this, he had all of this wisdom about the pace that we needed to hike at, when we needed to refill our water, where we might find good shelter, and where the good fishing holes might be. His time spent studying that map provided him with a level of wisdom and knowledge that made navigating the terrain much better. Now, the map, it didn't give him every detail. It didn't tell him where there'd be deadfalls over the trail or where a stream had run dry or anything like that, but it helped him gain enough wisdom about the terrain that he was able to make better choices regarding how hard to hike, when to stop, when to find water, and where to pitch our tent. And I tell this story because today we're talking about the spiritual practice of, of Bible study. And just like my dad pondering over his map helped him know and gave him a lot of wisdom of what it looks like to work with the terrain, when we read and study and ponder over Scripture, it helps us know God and it makes us wiser so that we can know and recognize what it looks like to walk through life with him. And just like studying the map can make all of the difference in having a great experience in the backcountry, reading and studying and pondering over scripture can make all of the difference in knowing God 
and in growing in our ability to walk with him in his ways. And so today we're going to look at a passage in the Psalms written by a guy who wanted us to understand this very point. So if you've got your Bible or a Bible app with you, go ahead and pull it out and flip to the middle of your Bible to Psalm chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible or a Bible app, that's fine. We're going to throw it right up on the screen. And I'm going to read to you, this is Psalm chapter 1. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, this is just a short little poem, and it compares two different ways. One way, a person falls into a life where they spend their time listening to different influences that don't draw them closer to God, and the result is they fall away and they suffer disaster. The second way, a person sets their mind and heart on God's word, and they focus their attention on listening to God through his word, and this person lives what the psalmist calls a blessed life and experiences a type of fruitfulness that only comes as a result of setting your heart and mind on God's word. And there's some amazing stuff in this poem, but the first big idea that I want us to see is that who you spend time listening to shapes who you become. Check out some of the specifics with me. He writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. When I was a youth pastor, we had this middle schooler. He would come to our group meeting, and he was just like a really sweet kid. He would show up, he'd listen, he'd contribute. He was pretty kind to the other kids. But every now and then, he would bring all of his friends from school with him, which was awesome. I mean, we wanted to help his friends find Jesus. The only problem was that when he would come with his friends, he was a totally different kid. He became disrespectful. He didn't want to participate in the activities. You could not get a word out of your mouth without him saying, that's what she said. He was purposefully disrespectful disruptive. And over time, he started to become more and more like his friends, even when they weren't around. And this process, this is what the psalmist is trying to point out. Who you spend time listening to, it shapes who you become. And when we pull this verse apart, we see some more of the details. The two things I want us to notice here. The first is that there's a progression in these words that explains what this process of influence looks like. The psalmist, he writes, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. In this, this imagery of walking and standing than sitting, this is like imagery of progressively becoming more rooted in something. It's like the idea of slowly spending more time and thought with something until we become rooted and sedentary in it. You know, we start out by just walking along with a person because after all, what harm is there in hearing what someone has to say? And I'm just walking. I can keep on walking out of here if I want to. 
But then you hear or see something interesting. So instead of walking, now you're, you're standing around for an extended period of time giving more serious thought. Standing is a more rooted position than walking. I'm going to stand here and see more, understand more, listen more. And then before you know it, you end up being seated with that thing. And being seated, it's like being rooted. I am here, and I'm here to stay, and it's going to take a lot more to get me up and out of this sphere of influence than it would if I was just standing or walking. And this is how influence generally works, isn't it? We get curious, so we watch or we have a conversation, and then we end up being captivated by something, so we allow ourselves to get a bit more involved. We let something sink in more deeply, and we consider it fully. And now, before you know it, you end up being firmly rooted in that, dedicating your time and your effort and your thoughts to it. One of my pastor friends, he told me a story about a lady from his church who ended up leaving the church and getting super involved in kind of like a culty, new age, Gnostic philosophy type thing. And it started when someone at her workplace gave her a CD to listen to. And so she was like, whatever, I should figure out what all the fuss is about. So she gave the CD a listen to, and while she was listening to it, something resonated with her. And so then she started looking up this teacher on YouTube and listening to his videos. And then she loved those so much that she bought tickets to go see him speak live. And after being invigorated by that, she decided she would attend a training where she could teach other people about this new way to live. And it was a progression from just casually checking it out to being more and more rooted in that until she had lost track of Jesus. Now, this is an extreme example, but that progression of walking and then standing and then sitting it happens with innocent stuff too. You know, your friends are like, hey, you should try cycling. And you're like, okay. So you go with them once and you're like, that was awesome. So you buy yourself a $1,500 bike and you're like, I got to ride it now because my wife will be angry if I don't use it with all this money I spent on it. And then you're like, this is so good. So you subscribe to Cycling Magazine. And then after subscribing to Cycling Magazine, you start listening to podcasts on training and nutrition. And then you join two or three cycling clubs and now you're investing four hours a day into riding your bike. And at the same time, while your passion for cycling increases, your passion for Jesus slowly decreases. And the psalmist, he's giving us a warning. He's saying, hey, blessed are the people who don't fall into this trap of slowly rooting themselves more and more and more into the things that don't draw them closer to God. But there's a, another part of this that, that we need to see, and that's that the influences that draw us away from God, they come in many shapes and sizes. And here the psalmist, he gives us three examples of influence we need to avoid. The first is the wicked. This is the obvious one. The wicked is the idea of like people who proudly do bad stuff. This is like the friend group you hope your kids don't fall into because they, they um, shoplift and smoke too much pot and do graffiti. Uh, it's the obvious one, the wicked. But the next two influences, they're more nuanced. He says, blessed are those who don't stand in the way of sinners. And now this term sinners, it's different from the wicked because in scripture, the wicked, they're those who are actively trying to live out the evil ways that God hates. But sinners, they're just the people who aren't really concerned about God. They're not always overtly wicked. They're not necessarily bad. In fact, a lot of times they're kind and generous, good friends, people that you'd want to be your neighbor. They're just 
not concerned at all about God. Now, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I know a lot of people who don't care one bit about Jesus, yet they're kinder, more generous, less gossipy, and happier than a lot of Christians I know. However, if I'm looking for someone to help influence me in a way that leads me closer to God, it's probably not wise to look for that from someone who doesn't care about him. And so the psalmist says, blessed are the people who don't stand in the way of sinners. And then the third group that he mentions are scoffers. And this one's so interesting because while wicked and sinners are typically referring to people outside the religious community, the scoffers are often people inside the religious community whose lack of wisdom or whose pride and arrogance and bad attitude make them a thorn in the side of the people of God. These are the people who, instead of learning and growing and celebrating, are constantly complaining. You know, they could hear a sermon from Jesus himself and be like, I didn't like the clothes he was wearing, or I can't believe he said that. You know, they always find something to complain about. Every church has a scoffer, and everyone knows one. And the psalmist is saying, blessed is the person who doesn't spend all their time listening and being influenced by the scoffer. So what happens when you put all this together? Well, here's what you get. It's easy for people who love and want to follow God to start listening to influences that pull them away from God, be it people who are straight up wicked and opposed to him or people that just don't care about him or even people that are are affiliated with the church but have such a complaining and negative attitude that they sour our experience. All of these have the potential to rob us of our passion and commitment to Jesus if we aren't careful about how much time and attention we give them. Because the more time and influence we give something, the more it will shape and form us, either for good or for bad, either for Jesus or for something else. When you spend time listening to things, it shapes who you become. Now let's let's bring this home. I want to ask you a question. How many of you have seen this pattern at work in your life? At one point, you were passionate about following Jesus, but then something else creeped its way in, a new job, a new hobby, a new lover, something. You got super excited about it, and you started giving more time and attention to that thing while your passion for Jesus waned. Has anyone seen this in their life before? Yeah, a lot of us, if we're honest. The more time you spend with something, the more it shapes who you become. Because who you spend time listening to, it shapes who you become. Now, this principle, it works both ways, uh, for good and for bad. And the psalmist, he points this out in the next verse. Talking about the person who enjoys a truly blessed existence, he says this. He says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, a couple words here, they need to be defined for us to help this make the most sense. The first is the word delight. Uh, It's the Hebrew word hapes. And while delight for us is usually like a a feeling of levity, like I delight in a fine pastry, especially one that's um, round and has a hole in it and comes with sprinkles on top, you know, I delight in that. But in the Hebrew context, hapes, it has a little bit of a different meaning. It has the idea of valuing something for its worth. So I would hapes the fine jewelry that I inherit from my grandma because it has both financial worth and sentimental value. It's something that I delight in because of its great value. 
Hapes, it's the idea that we see something of being of extreme worth, and so we value it, and we're glad to have it. So we could rephrase this verse by saying, blessed is the person to whom the law of the Lord is of extreme value and importance. But here's the deal. We can't just see the scriptures as being valuable. We've got to act in accordance with that. And that's where the second word we need to define comes into play. And it's the word meditate. His delights in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditate, it's a loaded word in English. When I say it, maybe you think of like transcendental meditation. You're sitting cross-legged in a room. It's dimly lit. Incense is burning behind you. You're breathing in and then breathing out slowly while you repeat your mantra, today will be a good day. (laughs) Or maybe you think of the breathing exercises your doctor told you to do to help clear your mind when you're stressed. Meditate, it's a loaded word in English. But in the original Hebrew, the word we translate as meditate, it's the word Hagah. And there's a passage in Isaiah that helps us understand what Hagah means. This is from Isaiah 31.4. It says, as a lion growls, or as a lion Hagah over his prey. It's painting a picture of a lion who's just brought home some dinner, and it lays down and is with its prey, and it makes a growling noise as it picks each piece of meat off the bone, bit by bit chewing on it, savoring it. And as it looks on the goodness of its prey, it makes a noise. And this is Hagah. Meditating on Scripture is the idea of slowly chewing on it, of savoring it, of reading it carefully, letting it sink in, not just for facts and data and to figure out what's right and what's wrong, but in order to actually listen to God, to let the words that he wanted written down to sink into our souls and to shape us. We meditate on it. And then did you see what the psalmist says happens when we do this? He says, the person who meditates on God's word is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, this is a poem, so please remember that poetry is not to be taken ultra-literally. So this is not saying that if you spend every waking hour of your life with your Bible open, pondering over it, then everything in life is going to be good and easy and you're not going to have to work hard and you're going to retire at 40 with 10 million in the bank. That's not what this is saying. Instead, this is communicating this idea that when we take time to listen to God, it's like tapping in to a source of nourishment that does not run dry. Because in that arid climate of Israel, the tree that's planted by the river, it's in an exceptional location. Because it doesn't matter what happens with the weather. It could be dry and dusty for weeks or months or years, but this tree, it has a constant source of nourishment. And the idea the psalmist is getting at is that your life, it might be tough. You might go through a drought. You might go through something that would make any other plant wither and die and be blown away by the wind. But people who have committed themselves to listening to God, to pondering his words, to knowing them and internalizing them and doing them, they have a source of nourishment that sustains them and causes them to bear fruit that wouldn't exist 
if they weren't drawing their nourishment from God. The person who meditates on God's word prospers not because everything goes well for them, but because God is nourishing them during everything that they go through. And the psalmist, he's telling us that just like rooting ourselves in those things that don't care about God and make us drift from him, while rooting ourselves in those things are bad, rooting ourselves in listening to God forms us in a way where our life produces the types of things that God wants and that gives us purpose and joy and contentment. He's basically saying, listen, what are the things that you're going to choose to listen to? Are you going to pay attention to the things that don't bring you any closer to God or God's word itself? Time spent listening to God through scripture, it forms us for God. Now let's pause here because I'm a bit of a skeptic. And so for those of you who are like me, I want to make sure that I, I dig down a little deeper into this so that it's not just a bunch of like flowery uh, religious mumbo jumbo. So let's ask a question. Why does pondering over scripture form us for God? Well, here's, here's something to consider. Uh, the Bible, it is filled with a mishmash of all sorts of different types of writings. You've got stories of how God's been at work in history. You have got uh, the teachings about how God wants us to live, um, stories that recount to us Jesus. You've got poetry that teaches us to pray. There are books that are meant to give us practical wisdom. And what happens when we ponder over all these things is that we start to understand what God is like and how he works in the world, how he wants us to live, how we can talk to him. And as we read scripture, we grow in our understanding of it. And as we start to live in light of that, then we actually begin to see how God is at work in our lives. If you remember the cycle of obedience that Mike gave us a couple of weeks ago, we're going to throw it up on the screen. He said that when we think about growing in our faithfulness and obedience, we've got to think of it like this. We hear the good news of Jesus, and so we believe. Believing should lead us to seeking God more. When we seek God more, we come to know God more. When we come to know God more, we come to love God more. When we come to love God more, we want to obey him more. And when we obey him more, we believe him more, and the cycle continues. Believing leads to seeking, leads to knowing, leads to loving, leads to obeying. Now, when it comes to trying to know God through the Bible, we've got to break this down just a little bit further, because it's often hard to understand how we move from like theoretical or academic knowledge of God to that type of personal and intimate knowledge that we've been talking about in this series. So let me try and shed some light on it. When I believe God's word is extremely valuable, when I believe that in his word I start to encounter him, then it leads me to seek God more through reading scripture. And when I read scripture, I start to come into contact with all of these divinely inspired stories and teachings and accounts of how God has been at work in history, what he's like, how he wants me to live, what's good about him. And as I read, over time, I begin to gain knowledge. At this point, it's an academic knowledge. God's like this. He's not like that. God works in these ways. This is who Jesus is. Where this starts to make a transition from head knowledge to heart knowledge is when I start to live in light of the things that I'm learning. Because at that point, I start to see in my life how those things are true and how God is moving in my life like he was in Scripture. 
So while I might read about how Jesus wants us to love our enemies, when I actually start to try and do that in my life, I begin to see how God is helping me and shaping me as I do it. And then I start to become more aware of God, not just as theoretical knowledge, but as present with me as I'm trying to do what he tells me in Scripture. And as we start to see him moving in our lives, in the lives of people around us, then Scripture, it begins to come more to life. And all of a sudden, when I'm reading the story of Abraham, I'm no longer just reading this weird ancient story about God being faithful to some guy he called to start a nation. Now I'm starting to see how the faithfulness of God towards Abraham is the same faithfulness of God toward me. And I begin to know and experience God on a personal level as I read. And when I read the teachings of Jesus or Paul, they start to be teachings that speak to me where I'm at. And when Paul says, forgive others as Christ has forgiven you, I'm now no longer reading that as like an abstract idea, but now I'm seeing God like nudging me to forgive that person at work or my sister-in-law or my neighbor who refuses to rake his leaves and they keep blowing into my yard and making my life a constant cycle of revolving yard work. I seek so I read. I learn when I read. My learning leads to seeing God in my life. Seeing God in my life leads to knowing him on a personal level. Knowing God on a personal level makes scripture even more personal. Time spent seeking God through scripture becomes the way where we actually listen to him. So what do we do with this info? Because the truth of the matter is that a lot of Christians have some sort of idea that reading the Bible is good, uh, but if studies are accurate, we are in a time where Bible reading has reached like an all-time low. And so there's a good chance that a lot of us, when hearing this, we're like, that's some great lofty thoughts on the Bible, James, but that's just not my experience with it. I mean, it's a weird book. And sometimes when I read it, it doesn't make sense. Or it tells stories that I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure that matters for me. Or it seems like it wasn't written to me. Every time I read it, I get sidetracked by my phone. Or I read for two days and then stop. And you know what? I'm actually not much of a reader. I don't even really like reading interesting things. And I get why the Bible is theoretically valuable. But I'm going to leave that to the pastors and teachers and other people because when I try to use it, it just doesn't seem to be what it's cracked up to be. So I want to give you two thoughts and two practical suggestions that I personally have found to be really helpful when approaching the Bible. And the first is, it is okay when the Bible doesn't make sense. After all, it was written thousands of years ago to people who existed in very different cultures. Not all of it is going to make sense, especially the first time you read it, or the second or honestly, maybe ever. It's not always going to make sense. If it did, uh, there wouldn't be so many books written about what it's supposed to mean. If it doesn't make sense, that's okay. Just keep reading. It is amazing how much of it will start to make more sense the more your familiarity with it grows. Secondly, I think reading the Bible is a lot like going to the gym. I can't go to the gym once and expect to be jacked. It's not until I make a habit of going and start going regularly over a decent period of time that I start to see the results. Going to the gym, it's a long-term commitment where we're shaped over time by the exercises that we do day in and day out. 
In reading the Bible, it is the same way. If you pick it up once and you're like, ah, that's hard, I didn't get anything out of it, I'm not going to do it again. The Bible is meant to be something that we read day in and day out over years and years and years. You may not realize any difference today or tomorrow or the next, but reading the Bible regularly is something that your future self will thank you for. So now for the two practical suggestions. Um, If reading the Bible isn't a part of your life right now, it is okay to start small. Please don't go home today and be like, got to find a reading plan. This one looks good. It only takes me 25 minutes a day to read. You will get discouraged if you try and start big at the beginning. It is okay to shoot for like five or 10 minutes a couple times a week and then work up from there. And if you're just getting started, start with the teachings of Jesus. A book like Matthew or Mark or Luke, these are great places to start. Please don't start in Leviticus. You will get freaked out and put it away. (laughs) And with this, I want to mention that there are some seasons in life where reading your Bible is much harder. You know, I think of the difference between a young mom and an empty nester. If you are in a season where reading your Bible every day is just not possible, God gets it. Uh, He knows what it's like to be busy. And while that shouldn't be regular for your life forever, if you're in that season, celebrate when you can do it, and please don't feel guilty about when you can't. And finally, the best way to learn to read the Bible is actually just to read it. But sometimes it can be very helpful to find someone who can give you some tips and pointers and helpers along the way. And so let me encourage you, if you're like, I want to read my Bible, I don't know where to start, check out Patty Harrison's class that goes along with this series that is actually starting this Thursday at 6.30 on Zoom. If you want to get plugged into that, you can write in your Connect card or, or email me and we'll get you plugged into it. She would love to help you learn some more about reading the Bible. And if that's not an option for you, You can shoot me a text or an email or write me a letter and send it to the church, however you want to do it. I would love to sit down with you for a while and talk about how to read the Bible for yourself. Because what you listen to, it shapes who you become. So make sure that you're giving priority to listening to God. Because when we listen to Him, we come to know Him. And when we come to know Him, we come to love Him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this psalm and how it encourages us to dig deeply into your word. Uh, We're thankful for that, and we want to pray right now that you help us develop self-discipline and encouragement in getting in your word. Let us look for the influences that draw us closer to you and not farther away from you. Lord, help us be a people that are shaped and formed more by your word than by anything else. Pray this in your name. Amen.